Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, team. You know, every Sunday, those volunteers kick it out here in the worship team, and it's rehearsals, and it's practice, and it's, we're grateful for their commitment, and they're giving to the life of South Valley Community Church. little announcement just before we get into our preach this morning. For the past year, uh, Seth Kurtz, our pastor, our campus pastor over in Porterville, has been working really hard to get things ready for us to now officially launch South Valley Porterville. And we are excited about that there. We're excited about all the work that Seth's had to do. And he's been preparing the church. He's been working on the merger. He's been moving them towards the start of something new, something greater. Uh, we're anticipating the reaching of hundreds, touching thousands of lives in Porterville. And so uh, we're now at the point where we're going to form an official launch team. And as we start this next chapter of it no longer being First Baptist Church Porterville, but South Valley Porterville, Seth will be here next Sunday, and he's going to be asking 20 of you to step forward and say, I want to be a part of what's happening in Porterville, and I want to be a part of the birthing team, and I want to commit for six months, for 12 months, to be over there in Porterville with Seth, helping see something new birthed. It's a Genesis time. It's a time of new things. And, and I know that God's Spirit is going to be whispering to some of you to say, this is you. This is what you have to do for the next six months. This is what you have to do for the next nine months. This is what you have to do for a year. And you have to say yes to this. You have to say yes to being a part and driving those 50 miles or so or 55 minutes or so to get a Porterville and say yes, and you're going to bring your personality, you're going to bring your character, you're going to bring your time, you're going to bring your willingness, and you're going to join Seth and his wife Katie and their two kids Felicity and Parker, and you're going to be a part of something new happening in Porterville and standing with Seth and the team there. And so, uh, you can email the office if you're interested. And next week, Seth will be here and he's going to speak about it. And then he's going to announce an informational meeting on Wednesday, March the 11th, we think. And think about it. Think about it. A, a vital, vibrant, mission-focused church in Porterville led by SVC. And extending out and reaching more and more people on the east side of that valley and doing it because God opened that door and we said, yes, God, we want to be obedient. And we believe that we can bring help to a church that's dying. And that led to it being rebirthed and becoming part of SVC. And now it's time for some of us to go and join with Seth and just say, yeah, we're going to put our shoulders to the plow and we're going to invest in seeing something changed in the lives of so many people in Porterville. So, get ready for Seth next Sunday and be praying about that, okay? And it's not about what gifts you have or how talented you are. It's not about that. It's about saying, God, I'm available. Just, if that's where you want me to be, God, for the next six months, I'll go there and I'll join with Seth and it's a part of SV, SVC and it's a part of what our church is about. And, uh, you could be the hardest working volunteer here and we'll still say go if that's what you feel God's saying to do. 
and some of our best people. You might think, well, I can't leave here. Yes, you can. If God's telling you to leave and go to Porterville, then you go because we believe that God is able and God is fully able to fill any gap that's left here. And so I'd be praying about it and then meet with Seth and he's the leader and he'll be talking to you and we'll be working this out over the next few weeks and months to get ready for maybe some of you guys going there after Easter or into May or at the latest by the summer. So exciting times. Exciting times. I had a few people that I said to Seth, hey, could you take these people? <laughs> but that's seemingly not how it works. Um, but, um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, well, no, that was the truth. Okay. Uh, so we're in this series called Consumed and what's sucking the life out of you. And uh, today I want to talk about bowing down to the idol of comparison. Uh, the year is 1984. And the Western world is dancing to Live Aid, okay? And there's these striking images of the starving children, particularly of Ethiopia. And they're on our TV screens. And for some of us, it's the first time we've really seen what hunger and poverty and famine look like. And what's unknown to us, the public audience, is that, and it's, and it's unknown to the TV and the camera guys, the lead singer of U2, Bono, he and his wife had spent six weeks before Live Aid helping out in a feeding camp in Ethiopia. And while he was in that camp, an old man, an old Ethiopian man came up to Bono and gave him his child and said, I can't, I can't look after this child. There's nothing for this child here. This child has a better chance of survival if you take him. And that was a devastating moment in the life of Bono and his wife. And it led Bono to write a song called Wave of Sorrow. And if any of you are U2 fans, you'll know that song, okay? Uh, and the song uh, takes into account the proud history of this famine-wrecked land. It's the only African country, Ethiopia is the only African country which was never properly colonized. And Mussolini tried for the Italians, and he tried but failed four years later. And this is the country with incredible history. Like, this is where the original Queen of Sheba came from. And when she came to visit Kings, King Solomon, and, 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 you know, Ethiopia has survived all these centuries, and it was now being destroyed because of lack of water. And, and Bono, Bono never released the song until 23 years later. So in a bonus track of the anniversary re-release of his famous one, The Joshua Tree. And you can download it on Amazon Music or play it on your Echo or Spotify. Uh, it's got haunting lyrics, haunting lyrics, okay? Uh, well, some of the lyrics were like, to wake up this morning was an act of will. You walked through the night to get here today to bring your child to give him away. Oh, oh, this cruel son. It's daylight never done. Cruelty just begun to make a shadow of everyone. And, I mean, I like Bono. You maybe don't like I I like his thinking. I like his words. Uh, wave of sorrow. Uh, you're going to have to stay with me this morning, okay? Uh, my contrarian tendencies are going to take over, okay? Uh, if, if you were to look at the earth from space, what color would it be? Blue. 70% of our planet's surface 
is made up of water. 326 million trillion gallons. But only 2% of the earth's water is drinkable water. <laughs> and you know that living in Lamar, okay? And it's poison what you guys drink, okay? WHO, World Health Organization, back in 2015, had a five-year global clean water target, and it was to cost $15 billion per year to bring drinkable water to 85% of the earth. And $15 billion a year, and they hadn't reached that goal by the end of 2019, and it's unlikely they're going to reach it in 2020. $15 billion over a five to six year period, which will bring clean water to 85% of our world. That's, this is the contrarian, that's 2% of what's spent on U.S. military spending to bring clean water to millions who are dying. We, as a country, spend $15 billion, the same amount of money, on bottled waters every year. <laughs> wave of sorrow. Blessed are the meek who scratch in the dirt. Blessed are the tin-canned cardboard slums. Blessed is the spirit that overcomes. I'm about to fly to Kenya. Janet Brown from Lamore and Jenny Simonich are heading with me and a few others to Haruma slum for a week. We fly out on Friday and Saturday and you know, blessed are the meek who scratch in the dirt. Uh, pray for our protection, for our safety. Uh, some of you think we shouldn't be going because of coronavirus. And, uh, well, we're just going to go and believe that God's presence is going to be there and His grace will flow. And uh, we hope and pray that we bring an encouragement to, to help those who are struggling. We actually got a letter in by email to the church office this week from uh, a girl called Mercy Owino. And Mercy Owino is a girl that came through the program in Haruma that you guys stand with, and she just lists some of the struggles that she had in life. And she wanted to just express her thanks to SVCC for helping her now. And she's married. She's out of high school by five years. She's married. She's got two kids. Her husband and her follow Christ and are just trying to live well, uh, knowing that they're here and they're there because of the partnership of South Valley. And so, uh, I'm looking forward to having Janet and Jenny with me as we go. So, wave of sorrow. There's a very special psalm in the book of Psalms that made it into modern Christian songs back in the 1980s, 1990s. I remember, one of you ever sang this song here, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. And it became a modern worship song, and, and I used to sing it, and, and I used to feel that if, if I'm going to pant after God, like long for God, then that probably means I've got to get up like at four o'clock in the morning and have this two-hour prayer time before going to work, or, or like to long for God, to ache, to pant for God, is to have like this extraordinary contemplative spiritual life that will require a lot of fasting and prayer, and that wasn't very appealing to me. But the psalm is much bigger than that. Stay with me, stay with me. 
This is not a picture, as the deer pants for the water, this is not a picture of Bambi wandering through like leafy green stream-laden forests with a slightly dry throat. This is a desert country, and there's no rivers, there's just wadi, gullies that would contain water only in the rainy season. And now the psalmist is saying the wadi are dried up, and the deer is going to die if it doesn't find water, as the deer pants for the water. It's, it has to get this, or it's going to shrivel and die, fall over and die. And what the psalmist is saying is, this is us. We were made for soul satisfaction, and we die without it. There is something so tragic when a country dies of a lack of water, like Ethiopia or Chad or Botswana, or there are northern parts of India, including the city of Janai. They're nearly at drought levels where they're… Or can you remember Cape Town last year, South Africa, day zero, where all their dams were going to be dry? Uh, Seventeen countries just now are facing extreme water stress. And it's not just in, in uh, foreign lands, in the, in the U.S. <laughs> what about Porterville? Ran out of water two summers ago. Or cities such as Chicago beginning to see major stress. It's, it's estimated that within 10 years, by 2030, half a billion people will have no water. And that's only in 10 years' time. There is something so tragic when a country dies because of a lack of water, and yet 70% of our world is made up of water. But there is something so much more tragic when a human life, with all the potential of having been formed and made in the image of God, with God Himself having breathed life into us, the Ruach of God, there is something so tragic when a human life, breathed alive by the Spirit of God, has their life all dried up. And I wonder if some of you feel as though your soul, your life is being dried up? Like, are you filled with inexpressible joy? Are your emotions healthy and coming from the deepest part of your soul? Is your, is your imagination still running? Can, can you appreciate beauty? Do you feel alive? I mean, you look dead this morning, but do you feel alive? Listen to Jesus. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living waters will flow from within them. Do you feel as though there are living waters flowing from within you? Or do you feel as though it's dried up? The old King James Bible states it this way, out of his belly will flow rivers of living waters. The, the belly is the deepest place inside of you. It's the place where 
you have some of the strongest emotions. It's where you can feel hollow and empty, anxious, afraid. Scientists say that we have a reptilian brain, a brain in the gut, and neurons in the digestive system that produce feelings of well-being, of threat. Deeper, emotions deeper than we can put into words. The Greek word is koilia, from which we get the word colitis, when rivers of stress run in our bellies. Something I inherited from my father. Thank you, Dad. You know, a lot of bath time reading, <laughs> a bathroom reading, uh, the old classic IBS, you know. Let's talk about you. There is the you that you pretend to be. Funny story, funny story during Desert Storm, uh, this freshly minted lieutenant, and he wanted to impress the first private that walked into his command tent, and this newly appointed lieutenant grabs the phone and pretends to be speaking to General Schwarzkopf. Yes, sir, immediately, sir, you can count always on me, General. And he bangs the receiver down. And then he turns to the private and with a proudly voice of authority, Private, what do you want? And the private mutters, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just here to connect the phone, sir. <laughs> there is the you that you pretend to be. And living like that is hard work. When you live under a pretense of being smarter, or richer, or more important, or funnier, or nicer, or more spiritual than you really are. You live with the fear of being found out, the heavy weight of always being who you're not. You live daily drained and daily depressed, just trying to be the you that you're not. There's bowing down to the idol of pretense. It will wreck your life. It will suck your life dry. Remember, a few weeks ago, I talked about one of the most defining moments in any dating relationship is the first time the man sees the woman without any makeup on. Makeup is the art of facial deception. Makeup is pretending to make your eyes look bigger, your lips look fuller. If you've never seen your date without makeup, don't go a day closer to marriage <laughs> without peeling it all off. Her makeup off, all right? Possibly, possibly one of the best leaders at living not bowing down to the idol of pretense was Pope John XXIII, one of the most respected religious leaders of the 20th century. And he began what's known as Vatican II movement. And, you know, on it. In the Valley, we don't really do Vatican II. We're kind of back in Vatican I because of the whole Mexican influence of the Catholic movement here. But Vatican II was this reformation of Catholic teachings and began 1962, finished in 1965. Vatican II was done by Pope John XXIII. <laughs> 
don't get me going on that one, because evangelicals and Catholics, you've really got to begin to see each other differently, okay? But that's a whole other preach. But Alan McGuinness, in his biography, he wrote and said, he, Pope John Paul XXIII, never pretended to be more than he was. He struggled with his weight all his life. His first visit after being elected Pope was to a polio hospital for children. His second visit was to a large jail in the city of Rome, and uh, he said to the prisoners, you could not come to me, so I came to you. And as he was with the prisoners and giving them blessings, he remarked that the last time he had been in jail was to visit his cousin. One time he was at a party, and a woman wearing a very low-cut dress walked in, and John Paul, John Paul XXIII uh, commented afterwards that one of the hard things about being Pope is usually if a woman like that walks into a party, everybody looks at her. But if I'm at the party and a woman like that walks in, everybody looks at me. <laughs> the you that you pretend to be. Wouldn't it be so amazing to live without pretense? No masks, no falsity, no disguising, no having to make sure that you keep the act up. Then there is the you that you think you should be. And most of us live at some time or point bowing down to the idol of comparison. Like in our culture, TV adverts, glossy magazines, social media influencers, even the trashy tabloids at the supermarket checkout, which is not that much different from social media influencers, they all push us to compare ourselves to others. Like we're told this is how you need to look. This is the size, the shape that you need to have. This is what you're supposed to like or what you're meant to enjoy or behave or own or, or hundreds of messages that are pushed. You need this phone, this gadget, these shoes, these wheels, this hairstyle. Why always the hair? Do we really live in a free world? Some wise sociologists would say that America knows what it is free from, but it has never defined what it is free to, and that will be its ruining. There's a you that you think you should be, a you that bows down to the idol of comparison. I have a dear Scottish friend who for many years has thought of herself as inadequate as a spiritual person. And much of that thinking was driven by looking at her friends, the other women in the church, and from what she saw, their externals, she decided that they were so much more spiritual than her, and as, as a result of that comparison, it killed her spiritual growth because she just couldn't be that way. She just couldn't be as good as them at following Jesus. How many of you men feel that you should be a leader, but actually, you're a great number too? 
Or how many people feel that they need to be more popular? Or how many men feel that they need to be able to fix things to really be a good man? Or how many women feel that they need to be great cooks or bake or be great hosts to be a good wife? <laughs> Did somebody really say it doesn't hurt? <laughs> We're going to have an altar call at the end, and some repenting is going to go on this morning, okay? For some, you feel you need to, like, to fit in, to be accepted. You need to be more spontaneous or extroverted. Like, you're much more an, I'm much more an introvert than I am an extrovert, and I appreciate solitude. Like, even in worship, like, maybe you feel pressure to be more expressive, but actually, you're more a thinker than a singer. There's the you that you think you should be, and slowly bowing down to that false you is drying out your soul. There's the you that others want you to be, a mother, a father, a boss. How many people have an agenda for your life? Some good, some bad, but all their agendas. And then there's the you that God wants you to be. You see, here's what happens. Here's what, stay with me, stay with me, okay? Day in, day out, we become aware of a gap. It's not just God who wants us to be all that He designed us to be, but we ourselves want to be the me that we're meant to be. And so, but we know that there's a gap between the me that we should be and the me that we are, and so this leaves us with the emotion of guilt. And so we try harder, which leads to fatigue. So we quit, which leads us to more guilt. And this cycle continues. I mean, guilt is a good smoke detector, but guilt is a really bad fuel source. Living this guilt-fueled life will burn you out, will dry you up, will suck the life out of your soul. There is a new, there is another, there is a better way. And now let's get to preaching. John's Gospel, chapter 7. John's Gospel, chapter 7, is a story about the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. And I want to read verses 37 to 39, and you can read more of the chapter, okay? It's a fantastic narrative. But John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, it goes on for seven days. The greatest day, so that's the last day, is the greatest day. Jesus stood up and shouted out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink, just as the Scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him are going to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay. It's the Jewish festival of tabernacles, seven-day feast, seven-day festival. 
People from all around Israel would journey back to Jerusalem to enjoy this great festival. The rabbis had a saying, the one who has not seen the Feast of Tabernacles has not tasted joy. Sometimes it's known as the Festival of Booths, B-O-O-T-H, Booths, because it was required that the men camped out in booths. They didn't stay in their homes. But they camped out in booths under the stars, similar to when their ancestors journeyed through the wilderness. And the whole festival, all seven days of the festival, was about thanking God for His provision, especially the provision of water, thanking God for His grace and keeping them alive in the desert. And so, every day saw a procession as part of the central moment of the feast, and a procession of the priests, and they would come out of the temple, and they would go to a special pool where they filled a pitcher, and then they brought that pitcher up to the temple, and they carried it around the altar, the presence of God. Now, the last, the greatest day, the seventh day, they did this procession seven times, and everybody was around them jumping up and down and singing Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to Psalms 118, and they were carrying citrus fruit in their hands, symbolizing the harvest that God graciously gave them. And on the last time, the seventh time of the seventh day, the high priest carried the golden pitcher filled with water from the pool of Siloam, and a shofar sounded three times, and then they came out to the temple, and he took the pitcher, and he poured the water on the ground. Now, in this part of the world, you never, you never wasted a drop of water. They knew what it was to have drought. This symbolic act was a demonstration that they weren't only thanking God for His past grace when they journeyed through the wilderness, and God provided water. This was an act of present faith. They were trusting God for grace today and grace tomorrow to keep them alive. They would quote the prophets, with joy you shall draw waters from the well of salvation, because for the Jews, God's salvation was the land and the ability to live in the land day in, day out, which required water. Now, as that drama was going on, the the greatest, one of the greatest celebrations of the Jewish festivals, and the seventh day, the last, the greatest day, and the priest, and the processions, and the water, and the pitcher, a young rabbi from Nazareth called Jesus stands up amongst the crowd, and he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. If anyone believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, will have streams of living waters flowing from within them. And Jesus interrupts the cycle. And Jesus invites people to break the cycle where life spins towards dryness and emptiness and heat-hazed desert souls. Here were people who were always trying harder to be who they should be. Here were people who were often trying to please others and what they wanted them to be. Here were people, just like today, being the people others wanted them to be. People not living up to their full potential. People who ached with ambition. People who dreamed of becoming the you that you wanted to be. And Jesus invites them to come 
before God and be the best version of themselves by drinking of the thirst-quenching, satisfying, life-giving water that He gives. Where there is a river flowing, there is life. If a river dries up, life dies. And Jesus uses the known imagery of thirst, of water, and He says, I can give you all that you need to be alive for your soul not to dry up and shrivel. Where your emotions, where your intellect, where your desires, where your ambitions, where your talents, where your body, where your mind, where your soul has its thirst quenched. See, if you preach too much from the epistles, all you're going to get is a legal transaction with your sin dealt with. But if you preach from the gospels, you understand that Jesus is about eternal life now, not just getting heaven. There is an idol of comparison, the idol of pretense, the idol of false self, and Bowing down to those idols will wreck your life, will dry up your soul and leave you shriveled. There's a fascinating story a few chapters earlier where Jesus meets a woman at a well, the local water source. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 4. And the story is written in such a way to highlight that this woman, this lady, she didn't want anyone to know her or see her because she came to the well, the water source, at noon when the midday sun was beating down and everybody was in their homes hiding from the heat of the sun. There was a she that she didn't want anyone to know. There was a she that she wasn't happy with. And as she comes to the well, she was surprised to have seen person there, a man. And she was a Samaritan woman, and this was a man, and not only a man, it was a Jewish man. And she was shocked when this Jewish man spoke to her, a stranger, spoke to this Samaritan woman and asks her for a drink. And on way too many levels, Jesus broke the rules and the customs because a Jewish man would not speak to a Samaritan woman. Jesus comes across here as a bad Jew. And Jesus asks her for a drink of water. And then this thing gets stirred up because the woman, naturally, she holds his request for water to be about the natural. Like it's noontime, it's sunny, it's hot, she's, he's by a well, he's thirsty and he needs water. But Jesus in the narrative of John 4 is way beyond the natural. He wasn't thinking about his natural thirst being quenched. He was talking about a greater thirst being quenched. You see, Jesus being the way, Jesus being the truth, Jesus being the life was never, never about adding Jesus to your life so that one day you'll get heaven. Like you have the house, you have the car, you have the boat, you have the 401k plan, you have the promotion, you have the cabin up the mountain, you have the wife and the two and a half kids. And then if I just add Jesus, I'll be complete and I'll get heaven. The depth and the truth about Jesus being the way and the truth and the life is that following Jesus takes you into a deeper reality that's way beyond the surface of things and the natural. It's the best possible way for a person to live, but that way is inside out. The best life does not start with the natural nor end with the natural. It is supernatural. 
This greater reality is not the physical reality that makes you thirsty for water or thirsty for food or for money or for things or for health. The greatest reality is the thirst that your soul has for meaning and fulfillment and purpose and life and God who is the giver of meaning and purpose and life. And this is the gospel. The gospel that this church preaches and the scriptures preaches, that thirst that you have can be quenched, can be filled. But so many of you are acting as though it's not. And you say you follow this Jesus, but your life is drying up. Your soul is withered. I see it because some of you grumble and complain and are mean-spirited and have no humor. Some of you are joyless. What's gone wrong? Why has your soul dried up? When the one who came said, if you drink of this water, you will have life flowing through you that makes you the most attractive, contagious, beautiful person you could ever be. And keep coming with me. Jesus turns to the woman and Jesus says, the water that I would give you would become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the word eternal life in the Hebrew is the word olam haba. And for the Hebrew mind, it means so much, so much. You know, like in the English, we have one word and it means this, but in the Hebrew mind, olam haba. In fact, some rabbis would teach that it is impossible to completely fathom the nature of olam haba. It is so overwhelmingly great that it cannot be compared to anything in this world. It is life in a different reality. And Jesus says to this woman, today, now, you can experience a different reality. And the water in this well, well, you'll need to come back to it every day for more, and you'll fill it, and you'll empty it, and you'll fill it, and you'll empty it, but the water that I give you, when you fill it, will never empty. And the woman says to Jesus, well, sir, give me this water. And then, as from nowhere, <laughs> Jesus turns to this woman who says, give me the water, and <laughs> he says, go, 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 go call your husband and come back. What? You've got a convert right there waiting to receive you, and you say, go get your husband? And she replies, I have no husband. And Jesus says, well, actually, you've had five husbands. And the one that you're on just now, the sixth, is not really your husband. I mean, Jesus doesn't condemn her for her multiple affairs. He doesn't say, you, 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 whatever. He stays amazingly kind and gracious, and he says, you've had several men, and the man you're with now, well, he's not really your husband. Jesus looks into her soul, and he sees how dry it's become, how shriveled up it is. And he exposes her to the rawness of her reality, the rawness of the she that she didn't like. 
It's like she's searching for something, and man number one didn't do it, and man number two didn't do it, and man number three didn't work. She's searching for something. Man number four, now try man number five. She's a lot like us. We are so discontented. We're always hoping that the next thing will give us the joy. And for some of us, we do it in the spiritual world, but the next thing will give us the joy. So, God, give us another gift. Give us another prayer language. Give us another anointing of your Spirit. Or for many of us, we do it in the natural. Give us the next toy, the next trip, the next promotion. Jesus doesn't lead her away from her desire. He takes her further in. You've got all this emptiness, all this dryness. You've got all this stuff going on in your life, but you're still searching. And Jesus says, let me take that desire that you're trying to deal with on the surface, and you're bowing down to the idol of pretense, or you're bowing down to the idol of comparison, and you're trying to satisfy it with another partner, or with more sex, or with more money, or with looking younger, or having more toys, or bigger influence or more fun or new places to go. Let me take the ache of desire that you're trying to satisfy with these surface things, and let me draw you into something deeper. And if you go with Jesus, and you go in with His truth and go deeper into the, the, the depths of your desire, you will be willing to give up your vain attempts to satisfy life with things. And you'll discover the life of God springing up within you, and you'll drink from the deep well of His water of salvation. Listen to C.S. Lewis. It's not that our desires are too strong. It's that they're not strong enough. And Jesus comes alongside you, and He comes alongside me, and He speaks gently into our souls, our parched souls. And if you listen, and if we follow you will find what you're looking for, and you will begin living the best possible life because Jesus will pull you into something deeper than you ever dreamed possible. No wonder life with God is described as eternal life. God's best version of you. We were made for soul satisfaction. And Jesus invites anyone who is thirsty, thirsty to be the you that God made you to be, thirsty for fullness of purpose, of life. Anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Some of you need to draw water from the well of God's salvation. Some of you, you have to draw it for the first time. Some of you, 
You've got to put that bucket back down and pull it up again and drink again of the life that God wants you to know. And that's not done by a simple prayer or a formula. That's done by a constant thirsting and longing and aching. God, fill me. But the Scriptures say, those who seek me will find me. There's intensity in the seeking. It's like the widow, with her persistence of knocking, he gave in. How thirsty are you for eternal life? Drink deep. Because that salvation, it satisfies. And nothing else will. Let's stand for closing prayer. And God, you know that we live in a culture where we swipe the credit card or we hit the pay button on Amazon and boom, we have it. And that's our culture, God. And the thought of thirsting and desiring and searching and seeking, we don't do. It's now and it's here and we have it, and that's not. It's not the fullness of life. So help us become seekers to pursue, to long, to seek. Help us, God, to not give in when we don't get it or just accept the little, but help us, Lord, keep pushing and keep pressing and keep chasing after to know the fullness that you want to give us. Thank you for the amazingness of your salvation. Thank you for the wonder of the life-giving water that you've given us. And may this church be filled with people who drink from your well and know the life that you give. In Christ's name, amen.